0: How can you believe in God when there is no proof? That is the provocative question that confronts us halfway through the book of Jeremiah. It is one of the most haunting questions for people of faith. And it's the spiritual off-ramp for skeptics and cynics. In Walter Isaacson's best-selling book titled Steve Jobs, chronicling the life of the famous founder of Apple, He relays a story of when Jobs was a teenager. He had grown up with parents who who always desired that Jobs be raised in the Christian faith. So they started attending a Lutheran church with some regularity. And when when Jobs was 13 years old, he went in to see the pastor, and in his hand was the latest cover of Life magazine from July 12, 1969. And on the cover were two starving children victims of the ongoing war between Nigeria and Biafra. He asked the pastor, if I hold up my fingers, does God know how many fingers I'm about to hold up? And the pastor said, well, yes, God, God knows everything. And then Job showed the pastor the cover. Then does God know about this and what's going to happen to these children? He said, the pastor stammered around with some answers. Yes, God knows, we don't understand, that kind of thing. Then Jobs then announced that he didn't want to have anything to do with any kind of religion that believes in a God like that, and he never stepped foot in a church ever again. By the time we get to Jeremiah chapter 30, more than halfway through its 52 chapters, we would begin to wonder how the Israelites could continue to hold on to their faith. From the glory days under King David, the the Israelites had always relied on three pieces of evidence to prove that God was with them. Whenever they went through hardship, they need only look at three physical external objects to remind them that God was there. The temple, the land, and the royal line. The temple was a reminder of God's presence. And as long as it was standing, they could believe that God was there. The land was a reminder of God's provision. As, As long as they were living in that promised land given to their ancestors, they could believe that God could meet their needs. And as long as a descendant of David was sitting on the throne, they could believe in God's power and that they were undefeatable. Well, by the time we get to Jeremiah chapter 30, more than halfway through, it's 52 chapters, we hear a prophet who would warn them time and time again that all three of those external proofs of God's presence and power and provision were soon going to be obliterated. That was Jeremiah's job. Warn the people that the exile to Babylon was coming, that the temple would be destroyed, the royal line dethroned, and they would be removed from the land and shipped to foreign soil. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says that narratives like this in the Bible can be summarized by three movements, orientation, disorientation, reorientation. For centuries, the Israelites were oriented toward a a certain way of living, a certain way of believing in God, but soon they would be utterly disoriented. And I think the word disorientation is a pretty accurate description of what you and I are feeling on many, many levels. How do you feel disoriented right now? Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, which of those four words, or perhaps a different word or phrase describes why you feel disoriented right now? I I suspect that many of you feel disoriented by the choices that you're having to make about your child's schooling this fall, how to weigh their physical safety and and mental health over and against their education and their development. How do you make those kinds of choices? There may be some of you disoriented by your inability to draw close to, to loved ones and family right now, particularly those who are ill and grieving. There are high school and college students who are worried about what this next semester will look like and how to negotiate the challenges of learning and socializing and practicing in a a very different way. And of course, in the wake of the death of two civil rights icons, C.T. Vivian and Representative John Lewis, we continue to feel the disorientation of racial inequality and injustice. Hearing the words of John Lewis to get into some good trouble to to stir the waters of justice and righteousness that it might flow through all people, particularly blacks and persons of color. And then there is the disorienting and wildly diverse perceptions that we have on the relationship between fact and opinion, between science and subjectivity. It has become so wearying and even agonizing to have debates between ideological positions that seem to operate on completely different understandings of fact and truth. It's enough to make us throw up our hands in the air and get angry. And that's what the people did to Jeremiah. Every time he would point out these disorienting times to come, the people would do something bad to him. They, they beat him up and put him in stocks and they, they burned his scrolls and put a death sentence on his head and they threw him into a cistern. Prophets were never popular and none were more unpopular than Jeremiah. Still, through it all, Jeremiah was unwavering. And by the time we get to Jeremiah chapter 30 and 31 and today's text, we receive a word from the Lord that moves us finally from disorientation to reorientation and it is basically this even though all of the external evidence that you used to rely on for courage and comfort to hold on to god is gone there's a new kind of evidence that will never ever fade and it's been with you the whole time Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors, a covenant that they broke. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. From now on, Jeremiah said that the evidence of God's presence and power and provision has been placed within you. Internal, not external. And this proof will never be subject to circumstance. It will never fade. This covenant, this relationship that you have with God will not be written on stone like the covenants of old, which fracture and crumble with the times. This covenant is written in the indelible grace of God etched in your very own heart. It's no wonder that by the time we get to the New Testament, Paul and the gospel writers would pick up this idea from Jeremiah and use it to describe Jesus, whose relationship with us is written on our hearts by his own self-giving love. In other words, if you're looking for proof of God's presence and power and provision in this time of utter disorientation, then look no further in the mirror and see that God is there. Even if you can't find God anywhere else right now, God's grace is written in your heart. A few weeks ago, I had my most recent session with my therapist. I've shared with you in the past that seeing my therapist has been one of my most valued sources of strength for many, many years. And in this session, I was just sharing with her all of the reasons that I was feeling disoriented, troubled, anxious. Some of what I shared is unique to my line of work in the church, but but most of what I said was likely very similar to the things that are making you feel disoriented. I remember saying to her, it feels overwhelming. I said, there's so much to manage, so many demands, many people hurting. I don't know if I have what it takes, all the kinds of things that, that felt good to say out loud. She listened attentively, and then she offered me an exercise to do. She said, McGray, think back on your life. Make a list. Come up with 20 times when you rose to the challenge. When you felt like you couldn't do it because the circumstance was too hard, but you were able to do it. I went home and I tried it. And doggone it, it it was a lot easier to come up with that list than I thought it would be. And in many cases, the, the instances that I thought of I could only see now in retrospect, because I couldn't see the evidence of God's presence and provision and power in the moment back then, but, but I could see them in the rearview mirror. And I bet if you did the same exercise, you will see that all the evidence you need to claim God's grace in your life has been within you all along. In fact, I, I invite you to share a word or a phrase in the chat section that describes a time when you rose to the challenge when you didn't think you could, but only by God's grace you did. God has written a new covenant, not etched in stone, but written in the indelible grace of God in your heart. One more word of hope from Jeremiah. It comes from an episode in his life that we read earlier this past week in our daily Bible readings from Jeremiah's chapters 18 and 19, which I shared in my Facebook devotional last Monday. God asked Jeremiah to go to a local pottery maker and pick up one of the clay pots that he had made and go to a public place and throw it on the ground, smashing it into pieces to take a whole oriented pot and smash it into disorientation. It'd be a a performance act, a visible metaphor for the people to see what was about to happen to them. And those pieces would never be able to go back to the way it was before the pot was broken. But maybe the hope in this story can actually be found in not putting the pot back together the way it was before. In Japanese pottery and art, there's a technique called kintsugi, in which pots are purposely broken into pieces and reassembled, but not in a way to restore the pot to wholeness, exactly the way it was before, concealing the cracks and hiding the seams. But Japanese kintsugi actually highlights the cracks between the pieces as they are being glued back together. In some cases, gold or silver powder is dusted into the lacquer between the cracks as a way of reminding us that brokenness is part of the human condition. Yet there can be such a thing as precious scars, beauty from failure, a covenant written in heartbreak. You will never remove the brokenness of this moment. Some things will never go back to the way they were. But the good news is we don't have to in order to find evidence of God's presence and provision and power. It can be revealed in the midst of suffering, not despite our suffering, but in the midst of it. For our closing prayer, I invite you to keep your eyes open and extend your hands to the screen. Picture in your mind, people, all of us right now, hundreds and hundreds of us being put together as broken pieces in a broken world. Now picture your own heart and all the ways it feels fractured and broken. And hear the good news that despite the external evidence, God is with you despite the evidence God is at work in you, despite the evidence God is giving you what you need. You may see the proof someday in the rearview mirror, but for now, let your brokenness be made beautiful by the artistry of God, who writes in the indelible ink of a grace that will not let you go. In the name of our creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Amen.